Uh, the scripture reading today is from Ephesians, uh, that's in chapter 1, uh, verse 7 to 14, we're going to read through. Uh, and if you're in the church Bibles from up the back, that's page 976, um, Ephesians chapter 1. Bill has already opened to us the first six verses, if you missed that, uh, there on the podcast, you can look that up later. Uh, today we're going to work through verses 7 to 14. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Thanks. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you again. It's an honor, actually, to be able to come with and see you all and get a chance to share God's Word with with you. Um, yeah, well, this is our second chance looking at the book of Ephesians, which is an incredibly rich book. So um, I'm glad Jason prayed for me, but I'd just like to pray for me too before we start, if that's okay. Thank you. Father, we just thank you for your Word tonight, this afternoon, and we just pray, Lord, that... Uh, your precious Holy Spirit would open it to us, that we would see your lavish grace for that which it is, and that we would um, just understand that you have this wonderful purpose in our lives to pour out this grace upon us and that we might pour it out upon others. So, Lord, we just ask you to open this word to us today, that we might benefit from it, grow from it, and be challenged by it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're looking for a title, I've just titled this God's Lavish Grace um, in this part of Ephesians. So if we were to look in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 26, we'd read there about the patriarch Isaac. Now, Isaac had two well-known sons. I want to make an adjustment here because the old eyes ain't what they used to be. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You may remember them. Jacob was the younger of the two sons. He was born second. And if you may remember, he was born clutching his brother's heel. Okay, so Esau's heel. And this grasping of his brother was a picture of things to come. The name Jacob means supplanter. And a supplanter is someone who wrongfully or illegally seizes and holds the place of another. It's someone who undermines another person. And in this case, it was Jacob's brother, Esau. And as you follow on, later on in the story of their lives, in verses 29 to 34, Esau has returned from the field and he's hungry. And he asks to have some of his brother's stew, because Jacob has been preparing the stew. And uh, that's all well and fine. Jacob is happy to provide it for him. At a price. What was the price? 
Esau foolishly gives Jacob, his younger brother, his birthright as the older brother for some food to revive himself. As we follow on in the next encounter in Genesis 27 verses 1 to 40, the boy's father, Isaac, knows that he's about to die. And he calls for his son Esau, the oldest brother, in order to give him the blessing of the older son, the heritage. However, Jacob is his mother Rebekah's favorite son. And she devises a plan to ensure that Jacob will receive the blessing by disguising him as Esau. The plan works. And Jacob effectively steals the blessing the older brother of the older brother from his father. All of this stuff is leading somewhere. As a result of Jacob's deceitful behavior, Esau wants something. He wants to kill his younger brother. Fortunately, Rebekah sends Jacob to his uncle Laban, who lives in a place called Haran. There he will be safe, away from his brother Esau, and perhaps he will acquire a wife. This is found in Genesis 27, verses 41 to 46. Now, there's a lot more that we can talk about with regard to Jacob's behavior, and then what actually be happened, happens to the two brothers when they meet again. But what's more important for you and I to see in this story is the amazing display of God's grace towards Jacob, the man who would eventually become Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. In Genesis 28, on his way to Haran, Jacob receives a dream and a visitation from God. We read in verses 13b to 15 of Genesis 28, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done as I have promised you. So to Jacob is given this continuation of God's promise to both Abraham and Isaac. This, folks, is God's grace. It's evident in his ongoing covenant promise, which ultimately will include you and I. Now, God's word does not hide the sins of men. Sin is on display in all of its hideousness for generations to read. We see ourselves in the sins of those who have gone before us. Who amongst us can't relate to this or not say, yeah, I've done that. And Romans 3.23 clearly tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, despite being worthy of death, which is what Romans 6.23 tells us about sin, God sets his favor upon whomever he so chooses. Not because a person earns it, not because a person warrants it, or works for it, or tries to be good, or anything else. God's favor is bestowed according to the counsel of his own will. That's what Ephesians 1.11 says. 
This is his grace in action. So let's examine this thing called grace and see its beauty in the verses that we have found here in this first chapter of Ephesians. So just a little bit by way of review here to understand about Ephesus. The city of Ephesus itself was chiefly, uh, chiefly celebrated the worship and the temple of the Greek goddess Diana. This was accounted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Apostle Paul visited there first in AD 54, according to Acts 18, verses 19 and 21. And this first brief visit was followed by a longer one later in the year, close of the same year, and continuing for the following two years. So Paul had been there for a while. The church thus early established also enjoyed the labors of friends of Paul, Aquila and Priscilla. You may know those, those names out of Acts and of a fellow named Tychicus, and finally, of a spiritual son of Paul by the name of Timothy, to whom Paul wrote two of his letters. Now, it's interesting to note the spiritual condition of the city of Ephesus during the first century. According to the book of Acts, the image Diana of Diana, or Artemis, fell to earth. It is being surmised that this was actually a meteorite, which was then carved into the torso of the idol. Both male and female prostitutes were associated and attached to the Ephesian temple, and to serve in the performance of orgiastic rituals required by the virgin goddess Diana. Witchcraft, the magic arts, and the emperor cult, the worship of the emperor, were also prominent in the city and region. In other words, when you look at Ephesus, it was pagan to the core, and Paul and others were encouraging the fledgling church in the midst of an idolatrous city to be faithful to Christ and to not leave their first love, as it says in Revelation 2, verse 4. These were the conditions in the city, and Paul writes to the Ephesians to help them understand God's power and grace at work in their lives despite the opposition around them. So what is the grace of God? The Greek word for, the, for grace is charis, from which we derive terms such as charisma and charismatic. Thus, in the church today, we see charismatic believers who believe in the present-day renewal of the gifts of God described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now, one aspect of grace is that it implies a gift, a special blessing from the Lord God. Thayer's Greek lexicon of the New Testament says this about the word grace. It's really a good definition. It is used of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. Is that a gift or what? Isn't that wonderful? What God gives to those upon whom he sets his grace. So God exerts his holy influence on souls, doing what? Turning them to Christ. Grace. Grace is God acting upon people. It is wholly his work, and it is unmerited, meaning you and I don't deserve it. It is the evidence of God's kind intent towards us. 
Thus, there can be no sense of pride in us for the grace that God bestows, can there? We as sinners are not worthy of it. Our sins, as we've seen, are a death warrant. But God's grace, his favor, bestowed upon us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, has given us what? Eternal life. It's made us sons and daughters of the Most High. It's given us a lively hope and a future and an eternal heritage in him. His grace provides us with the confidence that we belong to him. Looking at verses 7 to 10, just reading here. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This word redemption in verse 7 denotes forgiveness and justification. Redemption as a result of expiation. Deliverance from guilt and sin through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins, indicating both the liberation from the guilt and doom of sin and an introduction into a life of liberty, of newness of life. Through his blood, the Lord Jesus was the ransom sacrifice for sin. He bought us back, that's redemption, from the dominion of Satan and from the condemnation of sin. Past, present, and future. You understand that. A lot of us think about sins in terms of, yeah, God has, God has brought me out of my sins of the past. God's purpose in that redemption is past, present, and future sins. Why? Because we belong to him. That's his grace in action. He has forgiven us and liberated us from the eternal consequences and given us new life in him. And this is because solely of his grace, this unmerited favor that he has directed towards you and I as sinners. Years ago, Christian recording artist Wayne Watson wrote a song uh, about this exchange that happens how God has brought about in our lives. It's called New Lives for Old. And this is one, one verse of it. They said he ran a carnival that used to come to town till one September afternoon he shut it down. They tell me something happened. Some said he lost his mind. Now most September afternoons, this is what we find. An old man on the corner where he used to sell his show and he shouts what sounds like foolishness as the people come and go. New lives for old, warm hearts for cold. Have I got a deal for you today? Come on, accept Christ this day and get your new life for old. Consider the further benefits of this marvelous grace. This verse tells us that God makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his immeasurable wisdom. Before Christ redeemed us, we were his enemies. And not only was his will unknown to us, it didn't even interest us. Because we saw ourselves as our own gods, 
The only will we were interested in was our own. And its motivation was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, according to 1 John 2.16. But now our hearts cry out in concert with the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Show us the way in which we should walk, O Lord. May our hearts be flooded with the light of your word, that we might walk in your paths and do what is pleasing in your sight. New lives for old. In the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners, mercy and justice have met. We received, he received the punishment for our sins as God's justice, and we received his mercy because only Christ's perfect sacrifice could pay sin's price. We also see that in this redemption, this purchase price that Christ has paid, not only for you and I, but for all the saints throughout history and the future. But it doesn't stop there. The scripture says, quote, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, unquote. You see, this thing that you and I are a part of, this church for whom Christ died, is not a stopgap measure. It is not God's plan B. The church is, and always has been, his plan A. The church was and is God's eternal purpose. The failure of Israel in time and history did not catch God unaware. Israel, as God's chosen people, were not exclusive to all others. God's purpose in Israel, as the Old Testament church, was to proclaim him and his salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus we begin to understand the promise God made to Abraham, whereby he said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. He was speaking to those who were of the covenant of faith. Like Abraham, who believed God, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. Romans 4 verse 3. His salvation would extend to all the nations, and we as believers in Christ are of that covenant of faith. God, as creator, sustainer, and owner of all things, is in the business of restoration. He says he is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Did you get that? When he says all things, what does that leave out? Answer? Nothing. His redemption of creation will be total, and you and I as his co-workers play vital role, roles in this glorious revitalization. Verses 11 to 14. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all thing according, things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wonderful words. In God's grace, in his unearned favor directed towards us, we have been made heirs. He has planned for, chosen, and called us to inherit the riches of his kingdom as sons and daughters. That's who inherits. We are the purchased possessions of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is very humbling to realize that God has saved you and I by his grace. Meaning there was nothing special about us to make us attractive to him. This is the struggle that so many people have. They believe they have to do something to earn God's favor. If I can just be good enough, if I can just do a few more works of charity, if I can just give up this or that bad habit, then perhaps God will smile upon me. But here the Apostle Paul comes along and blows all those nations of the notions of being able to work ourselves into God's favor completely out of the water. He says, we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what is the solution to why God has chosen one person to be a son or a daughter and passed over another person? He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That is as much as an answer of an answer as the Bible gives. In Romans 7.18, this is beautiful, Paul says, this is the Apostle Paul, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is the Apostle Paul, okay? This is the Apostle who, when he goes to bed at night and he takes off his tunic, he has the big S-A emblazoned on his chest, super apostle, you know? And this is what he's saying. He said, those things that I wish I could do, I, I can't do it. And then in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he goes on and it says, he accounts himself as the foremost of sinners. Paul persecuted the early church with zeal. But on the road to Damascus, the gracious Savior stooped down and saved Paul in his sin and regenerated him. Why? Because he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. We believed in him and we continue to believe in him because we hear his word of truth. Romans 10, 17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is as we hear God's word and as the Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes and ears that we're able to receive it as the word of life. Powerful scripture Jesus gives us here. To his first disciples in John 6, 63, he says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. And when we receive Christ's word and believe it, salvation comes. 
the Holy Spirit now takes up residence in our lives. The precious Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that hovered over the waters, the Spirit of God who created all that exists is now resident in our lives. And he has given a, he was given that he might lead us into all truth, John 16, 13. The Amplified Bible says that when we exercise faith in Christ, we are stamped with a seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen films from, say, the 18th century, but important letters amongst the gentry, the wealthy, and the powerful were sealed with wax. And then the sender's signet ring was pressed into the wax before it cooled to identify its origin, authenticity, and authority. There's an example. My wife bought me this when she was in Italy. And uh, it has my initials on it. The wax. So it bears my authority. <laughs> well, that's, that's the picture that he's giving here of this seal. Okay? So now, too, you and I bear the seal of the Holy Spirit. Stamped. Insignia. Property of the Lord Jesus Christ. The seal is there. This seal is the promise of our inheritance in Christ. Each of his saints, each of his disciples bear this mark and this identification. It is our guarantee that we are his and that he is ours. John 27, 29 gives us this wonderful promise. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a wonderful promise. There is an inheritance, brothers and sisters, laid up for us in heaven. It's our reward, but until then, we must be about the Father's business, mustn't we? just as Jesus was. And this also is the purpose of the grace of God working in our lives. So let's quickly apply this. The message today is all about God and how he has lavished this amazing grace on unworthy sinners such as you and I. We have nothing of which we can be proud, and we have every reason to walk in humility. Micah 6.8 tells us, he has told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Because we have received such costly gifts of grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it is only appropriate we share these gifts with others. Thus, there are three distinct directions for ministry. So those of you who like three-point sermons, here it is. Three distinct directions for ministry because of this grace. First of all, this grace directs us in ministry Godward. What do you mean by that, Bill? We bless God. We bless God by giving him glory, by living a life that is marked by worship, repentance, humility to change, and thanksgiving. So we minister to God and we're able to give him glory. That is grace in action in our lives towards God. Secondly, there's a grace in your life, brother, in your life, sister, that is operative in the church. Now, me and the great big thing out there. 
right here in the church as disciples, as brothers and sisters in Christ, our love towards one another is demonstrated how? By building one another up, by consoling one another, by challenging one another as we walk arm in arm praying for one another. You want to do a word study in the book of Ephesians sometime. Look at the word together. Get your concordance out and look up the word together and take a look at the book of Ephesians. Guess what? It's there lots. Why? Because the church is not about a star performance. Yes, we've had the Billy Grahams. Yes, we've had the Reinhard Bonkies. Yes, we've had lots and lots of evangelists over the ages. And they have done their jobs and they're probably still doing their job. But God's eternal purpose, brothers and sisters, is right here in the church. Together. You and me, arm in arm. That's where your grace in your life is operative. You've given glory, you're giving glory to God, and you're sharing those gifts in building up others. And thirdly, there is an outward aspect of this ministry of grace. God's gifts of grace are not just for the church. We can show this how. We can show his love in thought and in word and deed to others. Why? Because we were once like them, lost in sin and despair. And the grace in our lives can be shared with them to direct them to Christ. We have each been given gifts, both naturally and supernaturally, so that we might touch and influence the lives of others around us. This is the salt and the light that Jesus talked about with regard to his disciples. Salt is a preservative. It influences it prevents degradation. Light cannot be hidden, can it? It shines in the darkness, and the darkness never overcomes it. When Jacob returned from his years away in the service of Laban, he trembled at the thought of encountering his brother Esau, and rightfully so. However, when Esau saw and saw his brother returning and met him, Genesis 33, 4 tells us this. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Despite circumstances, despite sin, despite family intrigue, the Lord God had his way in the life of Jacob. His grace was always fully engaged. Jacob started off as a supplanter, but the angel of the Lord changed his name to Israel, one who struggles with God. And Israel would become the father of the 12 tribes. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was as sure as his grace was operative in their lives. It is also operative in our lives today. And so we live to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.